0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is Panash Desai. He's a best-selling author and a business and life catalyst. You're going, all right, Dave, we got someone who's a little bit on the, the, the softer side of things, not a hardcore biochemist. And that's good because I love conversations like this because you can learn a lot there. And... He's kind of a big deal though because he's been on Oprah, on her Super Soul Sunday show. He's worked alongside Deepak Chopra who was just on the show and he works with Reverend Michael Beckwith uh, as well. So this is uh, one of today's modern leaders in personal development. And Panache's new book is called You Are Enough: Revealing the Soul to Discover Your Power, Potential, and Possibility. And I want you to hear today's episode because he's got a very powerful gift of just transforming people energetically and there's a lot of stuff that i had to work on myself around beliefs and patterns and sort of automated systems that made me suffer and believe limitations that i actually didn't have and panache has spent his life figuring out those things and then helping countless people figure it out for themselves now given all the weird virus stuff going around now's the best time ever to jump in on this stuff. So that's why he's on the show. Panash, welcome.
2: Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here with you and the biohacking community all over the world. Thanks for having me.
1: It's hard to know. Uh, you're welcome, by the way. Uh, it, it's hard to know where to start with you uh, because you've, you've kind of gone all, all over the place from a spiritual perspective. But I, I'm going to just jump right in. At the Bulletproof or at the biohacking conference last year was its uh, seventh year on stage At the end of the conference, I closed with a meditation. And I I asked everyone in the audience, you know, there's 1,500 people or so in the room. So I take a deep breath in. We're going to do a box breath. And I said, there, now, tell yourself, I am enough. Right, And as soon as everyone relaxed like that, I looked at them and right away I said, fuck that. And, And I said, seriously, you can ask for anything you want. And the very best you have is to just be enough. Why don't you ask to be more than enough? <laughs> like, be a rock star, not, oh, I can tread water. So <laughs> you named your book, You Are Enough. Like, don't you have a bigger goal than that?
2: So it's interesting that you say that because people who are outwardly materialistically driven have this false notion that's based in fear, lack, and scarcity or pain that more is better. But I've had the pleasure of mentoring people from all over the world who have accomplished success at the highest levels who quite honestly, brother, don't have a single moment of peace. They're on this hamster wheel of being driven by fear every single day to where literally their identity is so wrapped up in it that they cannot relax in the presence of everything that they've accumulated.
1: But that's about having enough, not about being enough. And, and that was the specific meditation.
2: Right. So here's where it gets really interesting, because once we've exhausted the material possibility, the potential, the promise right, that we have dangled in front of us of more is better, more is better, more is better. And we've exhausted that. The only place left for us to go to maintain any sense of sanity is inside. At some point, we have to turn our attention back within and cultivate some semblance of peace and start to uncover everything inside of us that was a driving factor in the first place that led to all of this production and consumption. Because it's just a vicious cycle. The more you produce, the more you consume. The better you are at producing, you, you just consume at a five-star level. And, and it's just a vicious cycle. And then your whole life is gone. And then you're on your deathbed. You're having your last breath. And it's like, oh, God, I wish I'd loved more. I wish I'd been available for the experiences that were being presented to me more. I wish I'd been available for my family. And so this book came about as a result of almost 20-plus years of working with people and diagnosing through working with them individually that there was one core element that was missing, that was the key to fulfillment. In some ways you could call it a biohack, but it's more of an inner uh, shift in state of being, which of course now we know how we feel about ourselves determines our neurology and it determines our biology and then by extension determines our experience of our reality. And so if we're not feeling like we're enough, we're sending all of those signals through the body right? We're creating a biology of not being enough and then we're creating a reality of not being enough. And so the fundamental shift that we have to go through is building from a foundation of being enough because there's a superpower that we tap into from that place. One of the things that I always share with people that I mentor is that the person in the room who has no need has all of the leverage.
1: Right. Because so if you don't need to do the deal, you can walk away at any time and then people have to come to you. the uh, The idea that, okay, being enough puts you in a uh, in a, a certain biological state, 100% alignment, there's lots of, of neuroscience, um, you know, there's lots of things around stress response, parasympathetic things. Uh, now, what I, I did in, in my path here was, okay, even though I'm outwardly successful as a young person, you know, I made 6 million bucks when I was 26, uh, which is great, um, I lost 6 million dollars when I was 28, uh, not, not so good. So you you learn a few things uh, around suffering and, and all from an experience like that, um, but I I look at that and and realizing okay first yeah I I'm enough but then there's also this sense of I've got this like I don't know what's coming next but whatever it is I've got it like I I have a, I, it it's not even about enough it's that whatever I have is infinitely scalable and it's probably a little bit more than I really need right so it, it's a sense of abundance that that goes beyond being enough. How do you contrast those two things? Maybe I'm just asking the same thing twice, but it may just be, is there another level beyond being enough? Or is when people achieve this enough that it's it's just there in your body of work?
2: So once they get to this place of being enough, they source their choices and decisions from a place of peace. And there's so much power in that place of peace. There's so much power in that place of connection. Because all of a sudden you find yourself guided, you tap into an intuition, you tap into an awareness that you didn't even know that you had this gift and this superpower that was inside of you that was just dormant, waiting to be awakened and invoked on your behalf. And so in making this shift, what's happened is that people have stepped out of pain and dysfunction. They've stepped out of all of the things that are undermining their health and well-being, and their relationships and their financial future. And, and typically all of the sabotage that comes along with building a life on a platform of pain right? As opposed to a platform of peace. And then they're able to become sustainable. And this is where sustainability becomes so important. Why? Because they've become natural again. They've gotten rid of all of that shit, but convinced them that they weren't enough and that made them be normal and that normalized them. And they're finally at a point where now they're able to finally relax into the truth. Wait a minute. I have something inside of me that is eternal. That's infinite. That's the truth of who I am. Right. I have this body and I have this mind and I have these feelings. But guess what? Those are all states that shift over time. Right. My 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 body is going to shift over time the way I think and what I believe is going to fundamentally evolve as I evolve. If I'm curious and my feeling state is going to evolve as well. You know, what bothers me when I'm 20 is not going to bother me when I'm 70. And so in the context of evolution, that feeling of being enough is the restoration of safety, which we know that in the absence of safety, there is no place of evolution. There's no space of development. And that anything that we build on that foundation of not feeling safe is destined to crash and burn. You know, and you and I have seen this in a million different iterations, in a million different industries, a million different genres, where it's like the giant epic success and then the giant epic collapsing of that success because it was driven by this pain. And so what exists beyond feeling enough is fulfillment. It's it's this absolute space within which you're in flow. You're in harmony. You're existing in the world in a way where everything in life is in relationship to you as the authentic expression of itself. So what awaits you beyond this feeling or the restoration of the feeling of being enough is a life beyond your imagining. You literally become limitless in so many ways.
1: What percentage of your time do you spend feeling like you're enough?
2: At the core level, I'm always feeling that way. So what I've discovered is that what I've discovered is that um, peace is, our, is the foundation of who we are. Right? All of our emotions are happening over this foundational level of peace. As is our mind. As is our body. And so when we explore transformation, what we have to focus on is everything that's happening at the emotional level. It's everything that's happening at the level of feeling and the degree to which we're able to be with what we're feeling and to experience it. And to be available for it is the degree to which we're shifting that level of the mind, we're shifting that level of the body, and we're shifting that level of our reality. And so the core of everyone right now that's tuning into this is peace. That is the truth of who you are. When you are authentically being yourself, you are peaceful. When you are tapped into that enlightened consciousness that you are, you are peaceful. This is how you know you are connected to you. And when you think and move and act from that place, the results are exponential.
1: Is that true for 100% of people or are there that 4% of sociopath, psychopath, uh, professional trolls, uh, that those people who are actually not wired that way? They're just wired for chaos?
2: Everybody's wired. Everybody has that foundation of peace. However, what's happened is that the pain distorts their version of reality. So you think it's all trauma? Okay, 100% it's trauma because it's the pain that colors the perception and it creates fragmentation. It creates distortion. And so we're unable to see and perceive the truth of life, right? So then we act; we end up acting out all of our incompletions on other people.
1: So, so Hitler was just traumatized. He wasn't truly evil.
2: Hitler was very traumatized and fundamentally had something, some fissure in him that allowed him to see himself as separate, apart, and different than an entire race of people that he wasn't actually separate from at all, right? And this is what pain does. Mm. Pain fundamentally distorts our worldview to such a degree that we can justify the most horrendous deeds right? And make it okay yeah. on some cognitive level, right? Even though we're fundamentally going against our essential nature in life.
1: I'm, I'm sort of right on the cusp there. I, I've always described to what you're saying there that, you know, pretty much everyone is fundamentally wired for uh, you know, peace and supporting others. And once you get all the trauma gone, you're there. But then I also am starting to think there might just be a few people sprinkled around who are actually just like, uh, just bad people. And even if you got rid of all the trauma, they'd still be little shits. Uh, And probably Hitler was one of those. I'm not sure, Panache, uh, but uh, your teaching comes from your observation, but you've also studied lots of lineages. I mean, don't a lot of them talk about evil Satan and things like that? And, And isn't some of the suffering people have, doesn't it come from like bad people or is it just our reaction to bad people?
2: So one of my favorite um, attractions to visit as a child was the Hall of Mirrors. And the reason why I love that was because no matter what mirror I was looking into and no matter how distorted I was, you know, a shrunken head and extra long legs and a big body and small arms, it was only ever just me. And what I've discovered through every ancient wisdom tradition is that I'm only ever looking in the mirror. And the degree to which I'm embracing my shadow, the degree to which I'm embracing what's being reflected back to me is the degree to which I'm able to be free of these false perceptions, these false ideas. Right. So literally, we are living in a simulation <laughs> and everything that we're interacting with is who we are. Right. And so the more we embrace our own shadow, our, the, the parts of us that are wounded, the parts of us that are afraid, the parts of us that are sad and angry, guilty and ashamed, the parts of us that believe that we're not enough, the parts of us that are addicted, the more all of a sudden we bring the light of our awareness to these aspects and these mirrors one by one begin to smash until eventually all that's left is this luminous presence this essence of light that is kind of the truth of who we are. And so everybody basically is just interpreting infinity uniquely through their own perception, through their own unique experience. And so how we overcome the need for these more extreme manifestations of like a Hitler or somebody who's an authoritarian or a totalitarian is by embracing and integrating these shadow elements of who we are, these parts of us that we've withheld love from, that we've denied Uh, that we've denied inclusivity to because in oneness life is as we are that ultimately all of this is a manifestation of our own state of consciousness and when you think about that it's a a pretty radical statement but truly when we become 100% responsible and accountable for every single thing that we're interacting with we begin to discover what this thing is really about which is waking up to the truth of who we are beyond all of these roles and responsibilities, expectations, societal norms, and all of these other things that have been superimposed over this pristine consciousness that we are. When someone
1: says, all right, I've decided that I've never felt like I'm enough. And I saw the title of your book, haven't read it yet. And I decided I want to feel like I'm enough. What's step one?
2: Step one, first of all, is to start to accept and embrace who you are. You know, nothing in nature denies its design. You know, squirrels don't go to self-help seminars, and cows don't don't don't, go, need to, don't need to go to abundance workshops, right? Everything in nature is inherently designed perfectly to 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 perform its function, right? For some reason, we as human beings are the only species on this planet that questions the perfection of our design inherently, right? But what's happened is we've invalidated ourselves, we've invalidated our uniqueness because society conditions us to conform. Right. The very second we hit the school system, all of a sudden, the more docile and compliant we are, the more we can function inside of that system. And every system has its own inherent set of limitations. So our issue in life is that we have invalidated our humanity. We've made parts of ourselves wrong. We've listened to this hierarchy that's been superimposed over us and we're experiencing separation internally the more we can embrace who we are emotionally, the more we can embrace who we are at the level of the mind, the more we we can embrace who we are at the level of the body, the more that 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 essence of who we are emerges. And so I've discovered that now humanity is really the doorway to this divinity, to this part of us that is potential, to this part of us that is this infinite presence. And so being with ourselves and accepting and embracing who we are begins to unleash all of that potential that we have inside of us,
1: I'm gonna play devil's advocate here because i I largely agree with what you're saying, but you know, okay, I'm following step one and I'm gonna wake up to who I am when I'm you know 25 24 something like that. Uh, I'm an obese uh couch potato, um pretty pissed off all the time. I like watching t v uh, not that I didn't try to do something about all these things, but uh, I like watching t v and that's uh, kind of who I am, <laughs> right? So there, I know I'm awake to it. I, I check box on step one, what's step two? Uh, but of course, a lot of those assumptions, all those belief systems weren't actually mine, right? And I was also, you know, an entrepreneur and I had actually started building my career and didn't have as much time to spend on the couch as I probably would have if I didn't have anything else to do. But in all seriousness, like there's a lot of people going, you know, what am I, I don't know, a couch potato, an unattractive couch potato with, you know, body odor. Like, like we all have these weird mindsets. How do you know uh, who you are in, in just step one of, of You Are Enough uh, when you have all these belief systems, whether it's you know, because that's the behavior you're exhibiting or because it's a programming that you got when you were young.
2: How do you know what's you? So again, when we're being ourselves, it's that core foundation of feeling peaceful, right? So everything else above and beyond that is dissonant to who we authentically are. So basically, suffering is completely inauthentic. It's completely inauthentic. It requires so much energy to suffer, right? It requires no energy at all to just simply be who we are, which is peaceful. So I think one of the things that's been missing in the transformational framework at large is that we don't have a context at the feeling level for who we are right? We have all this intellectual framework and understanding and this cognitive capacity to talk about ourselves all day long from all different perspectives. But because we don't know what authenticity actually feels like, we don't have a point to return to on demand. And because we don't have a point to return to on demand, we can't then source our choices and decisions from that place. But the first step for me is to always become very acutely aware of who we've become and to have so much empathy and compassion for who we've become. Because that is a product of a a system and a structure that has fundamentally judged and criticized and marginalized who you are in order to have you fit into a world, right? That quite honestly doesn't work for the majority of us anyway. And so when we first kind of wake up, we have to come back to this place of compassion and empathy for ourselves because we have to start from there, right? Where we start from and how we move on from that place of discovery is how we will evolve. And I think the bigger issue for that individual is that you know, clearly in that situation, a lot of self-judgment, a lot of self-criticism, a lot of self-hatred, right? That person was never embraced, was never held, was never enough. That person was never modeled what love was in any kind of demonstrable way. And so again, you know, in unpacking that, that particular example, you know, giving someone a, a real practical feeling point of, okay, this is who you are. This is what you feel like when you're being yourself. And all of these other things are just fluctuations that are happening at the level of the mind, the level of emotion. That at least gives you a place to start. But this journey of acceptance is a journey of broadening our inclusivity toward ourselves, right? So, in that moment, if we're 26, one, that's over, and we fundamentally don't love ourselves and hate ourselves completely, then we at least have to accept where we are in that moment in order for any change or any transformation or the possibility of any change or transformation to even be introduced to that individual. In the absence of that acceptance, no change or no transformation is possible on any level of life or living.
1: Okay, so we start accepting uh, some of those things, but we're, we're doing it now based on the feeling. Oh, that makes me feel peaceful. That's probably really me. Everything else is probably some other programming. Um, so then we all start smoking pot because <laughs> it makes us feel peaceful. <laughs> uh, that's, again, a feeling of peace. How do you even know what peace is supposed to feel like versus just being high or drunk or you know having really good sex or all the other things that seem pretty darn peaceful to me? How do you identify that feeling of peace for the first time?
2: So the the feeling of peace when I experienced it for the first time was just this overwhelming sense of calm and well-being that I just had inside of me for no reason. Uh, it wasn't the high that you have on part where you like whatever brand of THC you're currently imbibing, where you're just shot out of a cannon and, uh, and then you have this kind of momentary, expansive, out-of-body experience and time, and then all of a sudden you have to come back to the reality that is your life, right? So every other avenue and means of coming to that piece is unsustainable long-term. You know, I, I think sex is a great example because there's a moment where that basic primal need is fulfilled, and as a result of the filling of that need, we do have an entry point into that piece and into that moment of, okay, I'm, 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 I'm at peace here, Right? I'm 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 able to relax here, right? But again, it's momentary. So through all external mediums and phenomena and forms, that point of connection is elusive. You know, we can't sustain it, right? We have to come back to what's naturally available inside. You know, our biology, our mind, who we are at the feeling level is the ultimate technology. We're just not using it. You know, we're not using what we have. And that's because we haven't been trained to use it, right? We haven't we, nobody's ever sat us down and said, hey. It's okay to accept your emotions. It's okay to 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 be with what's going on in your mind, but you don't have to react to it. It's okay to be with what's happening at level of belief, but you don't have to react to it. Your body is this wonderful vessel or avatar that you have to navigate this simulation, and it's going and and you have the capacity through through your uh, feeling state to shift your biology in any way that you choose to. You can literally shift your genetic expression through how you feel about yourself in every moment and the dominant feeling that you're holding. And so nobody's teaching this stuff, right? And spirituality really, for me, the foundation of it is the mastery of of who we are as human beings, right? How do we navigate emotions? How do we navigate the mind? How do we navigate the body? Once we've got that, all of this external material success and performance, all of that stuff, it becomes so much easier because we no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is ourselves right? We no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is our our emotions. We no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is our mind. We no longer have to overcome the obstacle that is our body. So at that point, once we've mastered how to navigate all of this, right, that we are at the level of our humanity, through all of these wonderful wisdom traditions that we have access to, that really knew the truth of who we are, at that point, all of these other extensions become become easier, become way easier to navigate.
1: The first time that you
2: achieve that
1: that feeling of of peace that you're describing how old were you
2: i was um about 23 or 24 and i had always had i'd had always had this very interesting relationship with god because i was obviously born into an indian family that was very spiritual uh, on the weekends we'd go see saints and sages and gurus and teachers because it's what you do when you're indian and then you line up after the program for about three hours and they'd bop you on the head with a peacock feather and my favorite part was they'd give you some kind of indian sleep that was had way too much sugar in it And so I kind of justified it by the fact that I was going to get bopped on the head and get a sweet. And every time that we would go to see one of these incredible beings, they would say to me, thank you for incarnating, we've been waiting for you. And I just thought that that was the weirdest thing ever. And I was experiencing things happening around me that I couldn't explain. And so I had this relationship with spirituality in my early childhood that was deeply immersive in my formative years. So basically, that's kind of the framework that I was conditioned into, was this framework of presence, transcendence, and peace. Like the meditation room was my foundational essence. When I got older, I subsequently moved away from that and uh, tried to fit in, tried to belong, got involved in this whole notion of not being enough, got involved in the music scene in London. And a lot of my friends at the time, were some of London's most wanted, and uh, they were in the import, export and distribution business on a whole scale level. And uh, and I was in music. And so all of a sudden music came into my life. I turned on the FM dial one day and, uh, pirate radio was a big deal in the UK at that time. So we were listening to drum and bass and garage. And I ended up being an MC on a pirate radio station and, uh, started performing at raves and got involved in music and subsequently got to a point beyond that, where my journey took me back to spirituality. And, and the journey that took me back to spirituality specifically was one night I was in a, a bar. Um, I was drinking while Indian in a bar where nobody else was Indian. And uh, three people took exception to that, had an altercation, the bouncers pulled me off and uh, pulled me out. And then subsequently that night, I was embarrassed to go home because I didn't want to have to have that conversation with my mom and dad. And so I went to an after-hours club in Brixton, uh, South London, uh, and all the the great music at that point was in all the after-hours clubs. And before we'd gotten there, there'd been a shooting and we didn't know. And we walked into the club, next thing there's an altercation, guns come out, and I'm like, okay. And then we ended up in like a five to seven hour standoff uh, with the Metropolitan Police Department SWAT team because they wouldn't come in because there were guns in the premises. And so they escorted everybody out one by one, videotaped everybody. Meanwhile, my parents were watching this on television because it was at this point a major news event all throughout London. And uh, that night when I got back and I got home, it was like something had just completed itself. Like I was just like, you know what? I'm done. Like I get it. Like I'm done. Like I'm done with whatever this is. And I sat down with my mom and I said, mom, I've got to go live like a month for six months. I said, I've got to get back to the spirituality of my youth. You know, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm living a lie. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this situation that, you know, isn't really who I am. And that's what happened. I went back to an ashram, a residential retreat center, upstate New York, lived a very simple life, shaved my head and uh, lived a monastic life for six months. And there was a moment in that, once I had unwound all of the kind of emotional nonsense that I'd accumulated, all of the mental garbage that had been superimposed over me, all of the belief systems that I've absorbed, there was a moment where I just experienced this profound stillness. And I understood that this stillness is this peace, right, that passes all understanding. It's this peace that people talk about in every tradition. And that, for me, was the first moment. When everything first began to kind of happen for me was I was in Venice, California, 2002, 2003. So it's like a year or two after. And I said, all right, God, whatever you are, like I need to experience what you are because there's a lot of things that I can't reconcile that are being done in your name. So if I am indeed here to be a messenger, I need to experience what you are. And so literally New Year's Eve, 2002, 2003, I'm sitting on my couch in Venice, California, and I'm experiencing again wave after wave of just energy and emotion moving through me short lifetime's worth. And I get to this point, Dave, where everything just becomes golden light. Everything becomes this golden luminous presence. It's the most beautiful feeling and the most beautiful experience you could ever have. And it's a love that's beyond definition. Like any any kind of word that I use to describe what this love is, cheapens the experience of this love. And that's why when Oprah asked me to define God, I couldn't because any definition that we put on infinity inherently becomes a limitation. And from that moment, that was a further awakening of who I was. It was a further establishing of this. After that, I was in a state of bliss for about three to six months, just in complete bliss. And everything was like this beautiful golden light, which just everywhere and everything. And I was beginning to see through all of the layers of separation, all of the layers of fear, all of the layers of survival. I was able to see clearly what this is about. And at its foundational essence, what this is about is love. It's about that love. It's about reconnecting to that love, living from that place, and empowering people to remember that no matter what they've done, no matter how they've lived, no matter what they've gone through in their lives, that this love, beyond anything that they they could ever get from outside of them, is available to them within them. And the degree to which they're able to undergo this transformation is the degree to which they're able to reconnect it.
1: So you had a a really a pretty heavy duty path into that, and and I'm working to translate that so I, around the same time you know two two thousand and four i'm I'm on Mount Kailash, you know drinking yak butter tea for the first time, which was my inspiration for this. I've been in you know, the other ten day silent meditation you know lear, learning things uh in the same part of the world. Um, we're both kind of privileged that way. I mean, you're in Venice, my coffee shop's in Venice. Okay, there's a lot of people. In fact, most people listening right now are sort of locked up at home uh, because of the whole pandemic, and a lot of a lot of us don't have six months or even ten days to take off right now uh, if we're lucky enough to have jobs. So, how is one t- to go about getting some of those uh, those feelings of peace that you were able to go really deep in, so you can now teach it uh, from home, <laughs> like you're you're at home, you you can shave your head. Uh, but other than that, most of these other experiences aren't available to us right now.
2: Right, so so uh, shortly before the, the global pandemic, I was on a book tour. Uh, the book became a national bestseller and then the following week, Global Pandemic, uh, Coronavirus. And so at that point, when the, when the World Health Organization declared the global pandemic, at that point, that was the signal that I needed to pull the kids out of school and to immediately pivot. So I canceled all of my events. Uh, minimally through May the first, and then subsequently through June the first, and probably maybe a little bit longer, depending on what happens. Right. So immediately, because I'd been through uh, 9/11, I was actually in the ashram when 9/11 happened, and it was the most surreal thing. Like we were we were offering selfless service, we were meditating, we were we were getting ready to serve lunch actually, and all of a sudden we heard that there was a terror attack that was going on. And it's the weirdest thing. We turned on these televisions in the and It was like we're watching a movie day. I mean, these planes flying into the tw- it was that most unbelievable thing you could ever. It was so out of the context of being in the ashram. But in that moment when that happened, we immediately went into service. And so that was my first glimpse of crisis. And the first response was, "How can we serve?" Then, oh eight, oh nine happened went through that uh, adjustment thanks to the mortgage uh, situation that was going on and the loose banking situation that was going on. And then again, through that, was able to create a platform where we could support people in navigating their way through that crisis by tapping into that inner reservoir of strength and potential and that they have to navigate their way through that uncertainty. You know, Subsequently, I went through my own personal crisis with my daughter, Celeste, who was born with a congenital heart defect, she had a heart transplant at 18 months after 18 months of hospitalization. And she flatlined for eight minutes during one of her surgeries, like five open heart surgeries later, you know, she finally got a heart transplant, right? And again, deep, deep, deep immersion into crisis. And there was one friend that called me every day. He's in fashion. He's the busiest person I know. And he called me every single day. How are you? How's the family? How are you doing? Once again, a deep immersion into how to be of service. And then I stayed in Florida for the hurricane. Jan wouldn't leave. My father wouldn't leave. And so we ended up being here. And so I figured out very quickly how to navigate crisis in Naples, where I live, right? So now I know how to navigate my house, how to deal with everything. So crisis and the deep immersion of life provides us all of the skills that we need to navigate what's unfolding right now. What we have to do is get out of this fear-based survival response that most people are in, Right? because we're being bombarded constantly with these statistics and these numbers, we're being bombarded with all this misinformation and misdirection, and at some point it's like, we have to take charge of ourselves and our own state of being. And so right now, in the midst of this pandemic, you are in the most opportune place, regardless of your circumstance or situation, to take control of what you can control, which is who you are at the level of feeling right now you have the potential and the opportunity to come out of this stronger than you ever have before there's a simplification happening every existing system and structure that's based in fear lack and scarcity that doesn't serve us that doesn't work for the collective betterment of all of us is going to collapse it will happen so this is our opportunity to get back to what's important and what matters right and the truth is what do we actually need what is it that we actually need on a daily basis. Right. If you're like us, you probably need a smoothie a day, you need a couple of good meals, right? You need you need a shelter and you need connection, right? Some form of human interaction and connection. Right. But when we really boil it down to what it is that we actually need, life becomes very simple. Right. So the first thing that we can do is begin to simplify our lives. When the pandemic first happened, the first conversation I had with people that own businesses was: listen, put your business on life support, keep the essential organs that are the core function of the company, get rid of everything that you don't need, get rid of everything that's excessive so that you can remain sustainable through this thing for however long you're going to go through it. Same thing with people that had financial issues. Listen, you know what? You're invested in the market. What's your threshold? What's the exit, right? And how peaceful can you be through this? And can you be peaceful remaining invested in time of uncertainty? So not only will we be able to support people at the level of business, but we support people in transitioning out of the markets in time so they didn't take that 11,000 point haircut. And also help them navigate how they were meeting the virus internally, which was the most important thing. The reality of the virus was quite straightforward, right? Everything from outside stays outside. If you have a garage, use your garage as a decontamination unit, leave everything there for a couple of days, wipe everything down, come in, right? But these were all protocols that we were basically following anyway in my home because of Celeste, right? Because we had to have that state of hypervigilance. And so the most important factor, the key determinant has been how we meet this internally. So here's what's happening, guys. You're either being victimized by it, you're blaming it on, on, on your government, you're blaming it on leadership, you're buying into all of this conspiracy theory stuff that's going on. You know, we have to remember that a conspiracy theory is called a conspiracy theory for a reason. The day it's a conspiracy fact. is the day that we have to pay attention. As long as it remains a theory or a hypothesis, let's not subscribe fully to things, right, that may or may not be accurate, right? So it's important to, to tie into every narrative that there is, but we have to tie into a multitude of sources to begin to even begin to discern one ounce of the truth, right, that works for us. So the first thing is, limit your consumption of all of this content that's going on It's all based in fear, right? What source of information are you getting? That's the first thing, limit that. Second thing, how are you navigating your time in your home? Some people are at home for the first time with their spouse, right? There's no TV, there's no sports, there's no distractions. You know, people are having to relearn how to be in relationship, right? Take the time to relearn how to be in relationship. If you're not in relationship, take the time how to relearn being in relationship with yourself. People are being laid off from jobs that they couldn't even stand, that they hated, (laughs) right? So we're being given an opportunity to redefine what we're doing, right? Are Are we going to continue to make choices out of survival beyond this crisis? Or are we going to choose from our hearts and choose from love? and choose from peace, because I have to tell you something. If right now you're using this opportunity to choose from love and to choose from peace, when you come out of this thing, you're gonna be stronger than ever, right? And in a very practical level, Dave, when everything first happened, we pivoted back online. I started offering global meditations every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern because I understood that the most fundamental need would be a need to come back to calm and to peace. And everyone who's been participating in those has been able to navigate this thing peacefully and almost in some cases, apologetically, because they're at peace while the whole world around them is frazzled and scrambled. The other thing I knew that we needed to do was get beyond any forms of survival that we were holding onto inside of ourselves, right? Because survival undermines and impairs our ability right, to live. I mean, we're not living in the room with a T-Rex, right? There's not a t- There's not a Tyrannosaurus Rex in this room that's gonna eat me, okay? So our survival response is completely out of the context of what's going on, right? So this shift in in what we're consuming, in in curating what it is that we wish to experience, right? Curating our inner reality is the most fundamental and important shift that we can go through at this time. That way we're making the most of this window of time to come out stronger, to come out fortified, to come out rejuvenated, and to make the most of every opportunity that we'll have beyond this period of crisis.
1: There are a lot of people who are wondering... Uh, am I one of the people who is going to be susceptible to the virus? Is my immune system enough? (laughs) What would you say to them?
2: Your immune system is everything. I mean, you're talking about an intelligence that is amazing.
1: There are a lot of people who are wondering, uh, am I one of the people who is going to be susceptible to the virus? Is my immune system enough? (laughs) What would you say to them?
2: Your immune system is everything. I mean, you're talking about an intelligence that is amazing. I mean, this immune system, this immune system has been working for, for billions of years. It has all of this information. It has all of this, this uh, history to it. And it knows how to fight off everything. What's undermining people is the fact that they're in this fight or flight response and it compromises their immune system. It compromises their immunity right? So basically, it's the fear that they're buying into, the fear that controls them, the fear that keeps them in survival, the fear that keeps them marginalized, that's making them susceptible to the virus itself. Well, it makes them more susceptible,
1: but it, there also can be an awakening. Oh, let's see, I'm a diabetic. <laughs> I have you know high blood pressure, and basically, I haven't been taking care of my body for a while. Now, I actually am susceptible. Uh, i I probably am not enough if I get exposed, Um, just if I'm looking at at facts, sort of like I know that if I go up against a grizzly bear or two, um, I'm going to give them a run for their money, but I'm probably going to be dinner, right? And like that, that's just a fact, right? (laughs) Um, So without self-deception. So if you're in one of those things, you go, good God, I I actually just looking at all the facts, I'm probably not enough right now. How do you, and, and I mean, there are people who, you know, and they're listening, some of them, and they know who they are. They're going, God, I'm probably not in good shape to face this right now. What's the mental process that they could go through in order to have peace, which is actually going to make it easier for them to uh, to handle it should they get exposed to it?
2: So I think that what we have to do is find some sense of empowerment in what's unfolding, right? So in that situation, we're fundamentally afraid because we just don't have any sense of empowerment in that scenario, right? There's a virus that's going to get me. I'm in the high risk factor, right? Boom, we're up to the races. If I get this, I'm going to die, okay? But here's what's happening. I'm discovering that people who are in that high-risk category, especially people that I've been connecting with, have been using this as an opportunity to fundamentally overhaul how they're living. I mean, it really is waking people up. And it's sad that it takes a global pandemic and the threat of death in order for people to finally wake up and to begin to make different choices, right? But what's happening is we're cultivating a heightened awareness now about all of the ways in which we are undermining our health and well-being. And so the, the, the formula, as I see it, is pretty straightforward. If we're eating, for the most part, an organic meal, right, if we're getting a protein source that's been lovingly raised, if we're, if we're engaging in, in 30 minutes of exercise, if we're getting our vitamin D, if we're doing the basic stuff, that we know we need to do for our maintenance. And I'm not talking about getting ready for a triathlon. I'm just talking about the basic fundamental stuff. Move your body, get out, get some fresh air, move the stagnation out of your body, cultivate an environment of peace inside of you, do some meditation, get involved in some mindfulness, you know, understand how that's shifting your, your biology. Understand also how that's turning off some of the genes that might be responsible for diabetes It might be responsible for for people with heart attack or or, or or a stroke or these different things. Because now we're seeing that when we shift the level of feeling, we're shifting also at the level of our genes. You know, we're switching off those more harmful uh, predispositions, right, that we've inherited. And so literally, we do have the capacity to shift our biology, right? But we have to just do the minimum and and inform ourselves, like, you're such a great resource for this, you know? You're so much of a better resource for this than I am, you know? Look at what Dave's doing. You know, go to the website and take a there's look. There's different
1: right? levels. I mean, there, there's the emotional, spiritual stuff that, that requires some deep knowledge. And it, honestly, if, if you do the hardware stuff, it's easier to do the, the other soft stuff. Uh, but uh, if, if you just do the, you know, okay, now I have abs, but I'm still an asshole. <laughs> and you're probably going to get the virus. <laughs> like, you you got to work on it. Yeah
2: asshole is a very high category of actually being infected by the virus it's 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 going to come out that people who are who are not nice to each other are going to get this thing
1: there there probably is some statistical validity to that Uh, it wouldn't surprise me you know just that anger stress fear thing it does make you less uh uh, less resilient so i'm with you there okay That, that was a good answer uh oprah asked you uh to define god I'm going to go a little bit with an easier question for you. Define soul, because you talk about soul a lot, and there's so much debate about what a soul is. So how how do you use the word and why do you use it the way you use it?
2: So for me, uh, it's been important to use that word and use the word God, because we have to redefine our relationship with God and who we are in relationship to God, because We've been conditioned to believe in this God that has anger management issues, <laughs> you know, and that, and that we're unworthy to be in relationship with, right? And we could be smited in any moment You a know, bolt of lightning going to come and shoot me in my head. But you,
1: you grew up in, in India where it's God's with an S, right? There's more than one.
2: Think of it in this context. Actually, the God is the singular, but what we have is different telephone lines. So, for example... If you had a problem in your life, you would pick up the phone to Ganesh, you would chant the Ganesh mantra, and you would invoke that state of being, and that would be the state of being that you would embody to remove that issue from your life. If you had a financial issue, you'd pick up the phone, you'd call, Sada, you'd call Lakshmi, right? And that's just another vibration and frequency. So there's this illusion that we have all of these many different forms, but actually it's very practical. So, so you have you have all of these different extensions of this one singular energy that you can connect with and have a relationship with in order to help you with something that's happening in your life, right? So when I speak of God, what I'm talking about is this infinite presence that just loves you beyond anything that I could ever describe in words. I mean, it's this infinite ocean of energy with no beginning and no end. It's beautiful. It is so brilliantly golden. It appears as almost like a white light. And this is the core essence and foundation of what God is. And what I was shown is that we're all having our relationship with that mystery in our own unique way, right? But basically, if you're Christian, you're going down the tunnel. Jesus will be there to greet you, so you keep heading in the right direction, right? If you're if you're a Hindu, you'll be met by a Christian or a Shiva, whoever it is you believe in, right? If you're an atheist, somebody, some prolific scientist or somebody you know who's who's in the, will be there to meet you.
1: It's actually a Dalek uh, from Doctor Who who's going yeah. to be there for you.
2: So, so basically, basically, we're all having this relationship with this infinite mystery in our own unique way, right? but so so as that relates to the soul, what is the soul? The soul is is a part of that infinite ocean. And the way I describe it is it's the infinite ocean experiencing itself as the drop. So what we are is the unique expression of that infinite energy. That's the power that we have inside of us. And that's really the journey of discovery. And, and the essential self, the soul, the authentic self, For me, they're all the same thing. You know, when we talk about essential self, it's the part of us that never changes, right? It's the only constant, right? Which is that witness, the eternal part of us, the part of us as the observer, right? So all of these qualities are all qualities of this phenomenon that we call soul. But what the soul is is this drop of this infinite ocean of pure love, presence, and power that is beyond description. And that's what it is. That's, that's, that's how I experience it. And we all have one. We all have that potential. We connect with it in different ways. We relate to it in different ways. But ultimately, this is who we are. This is where we're from. This is what we're living here. And this is what we'll return to is this presence of just this love that is just beyond anything, beyond anything.
1: So your soul is a part of, of the whole thing. Does that mean the soul is immortal? Uh, are you a reincarnation guy? I mean, you're from India and you talked about uh, the, being bopped on the head. So do you think you're reincarnated?
2: I feel like right now in this moment, I'm living out all of the timelines and all of the experiences simultaneously. So it depends on what our relationship with time is. You know, some people have this kind of linear continuum of time where basically there's one lifetime and another lifetime and another lifetime. But for me, it feels like I'm living everything out simultaneously. I feel like in this moment I'm experiencing the totality of all of creation right and 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 this is the part that people sometimes have a hard time with because you know we're very uh linear in our relationship with time but for me my relationship with time is more multidimensional you know it's not it's not this flat line it's more vertical right and 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 nuanced and so yeah so in this moment every single person is living out everything that they have to in relationship to everything else
1: because time isn't real. So then you don't have to worry about reincarnation. All right. I, uh, uh, there are lots of, lots of belief systems uh, around you know, time versus space and you know, where you're going to be on the, on the continuum and you can be more time-oriented or space-oriented. Okay. Um, when uh, the, the gurus you would see when you were a kid bopped you on the head with a peacock feather and, and gave you a sweet uh, and told you, we've been waiting for you to reincarnate. Did they say that to everyone or were you special?
2: No, they didn't say that to everybody. And uh, and even when they said it to me, I didn't feel special. I just felt weird completely. Like I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about. And, and my mother had this sense of who I was because before she had me, she had a stillborn baby girl. And so she went to an ashram in India to be blessed by a Swami, uh, a guru called Swami Muktananda, who was a Shaktipat guru, actually Wayne Dyer's guru and uh, a guru to so many people in the most modern. And, and so I grew up in this in this house that was a meditation center. We had his sandals, we had his picture on the wall, and we had a picture of his teacher on the back wall. And so I was born into this lineage of Shaktipat gurus. And in India, all of the teaching that's done on a spiritual level is shared through presence. Like when you go and see somebody, you experience them through their presence. They don't have to talk to you. It's not cognitive, It's not. they're not really teachers. What they are is embodying their potential they've actualized their potential right beyond what what most people even know exists and in their presence all of a sudden you go through this radical entrainment and acceleration and it's almost catalytic to be in their presence because when you're in their presence all of these limitations all of these false identifications begin to fall away and so in india that's really how it's how how this happens is from presence through presence and so when I was a child, I didn't understand it at all, but I'd had experiences even as a kid where I would literally sit with people and they would start to go through some form of transformation. I just thought it was weird. You know, they'd start telling me the whole life story and start crying and start being sad and experiencing all these feelings, these emotions, telling me the whole life story how much they hate their lives and how much they, they wish they'd lived a different life. And I'm just looking at them like I'm seven, like this is weird. and And it just, you know, and it just further compounded like my feeling of strangeness, you know. And so I've always kind of had this very weird relationship with spirituality, because I've just been like, "What is this?" And this is just bizarre. And it took me finally having that experience where I could I could really connect with not just on the level of understanding, but on an experiential level of what the divine actually is. In that moment, I couldn't deny it anymore. You know, because I was very skeptical, especially being Indian, because we've we've got a five thousand year old history of this, and right? we've seen every iteration of guru and teacher saint and sage that you can imagine right and so you know i didn't want to be somebody who was just not steeped in any personal experience who was just talking about spirituality or regurgitating somebody else's spirituality or somebody else's teachings right i wanted to be somebody who had actually had an experience myself and who was able to share from that space of experience and so thankfully for me that's that's what happened and uh really everything happens through presence it happens through just connection at that deepest level
1: the idea of, of samadhi yeah, this this experience of oneness which is what uh you were describing that you experienced when you were um, in your early 20s there at least i'm i'm putting a word on it but i think that's the right word and it, it's something that i have uh i've experienced during really intense neurofeedback uh, uh, and yeah it's it's pretty weird after one of the sessions where I'd spent a week doing the 40 years of Zen stuff, I started a new job <laughs> and I, I came into this job and one of the the local uh, executive assistants and in, in the, on the floor where I was um, looks at me and she says, do you meditate a lot? And I said kind of, uh, yeah. And this is back in Silicon Valley where you wouldn't really say you meditated because people would lose respect for you because only a weird person would meditate. Uh, it it's unimaginable if you're like 25 today. What do you mean? But no, seriously, meditation was like a super weird thing to do. So at least in the West. Uh, so I said, yeah, I do. Why? And, and she said, well, you look, you, you have this weird look in your eyes. Like, uh, what'd she say? She, she said, like, like my guru from India. <laughs> and kind of like, you." I was pretty weirded out by the whole thing. Because I didn't really exactly... Uh, recognize what all was going on there. But I know I had some weird glowy look in my eyes and I was, you know, not in a normal state, but I was also trying to show up as a vice president at at a new job, which is not really compatible with that state. Uh, But maybe that was 1% of the weirdness that you experienced growing up with it. But the idea that you can be in these altered states that other people are noticing uh, in you uh, is, is a real thing. And, if someone's listening to the show right now, they're going, all right, you know, this, this Panache Desai guy clearly had an unusual childhood. He's special, right? And then they can go back into that, you know, am I enough mindset and go, well, I'm not really special. In fact, my parents told me I wasn't very special. My teachers told me I wasn't very special. Uh, you know, this isn't for me, uh, uh, these you know advanced states or even just this basic state of peace. What's the, what's the trick to, to help people see, all right, they're not you, but maybe they're more than they think?
2: Yeah, so, so I, I, I love this because uh, somebody once told me uh, at the end of the seminar, they said, you know, what you're doing is democratizing enlightenment. You know, what you're doing is actually making it accessible to every single person in the world, regardless of how they've lived and what they've gone through. And I just love that description because these states aren't special at all. They're natural. And the more we become natural, the more we access these states of being. So we're not going into an altered state. We're reverting back to our natural state, right? Prior to the conditioning, prior to the trauma, prior to the belief system, prior to all of a sudden over this, all of this over identification, you know, that with, with the mind and with possessions and with all these different things that we believe are real. And so what we're doing is returning to a place of harmony and we're returning to being natural again. So what I would say to people is that it, it's not special at all. In those moments, and you've all had moments of this, everyone who's listening to this has had a moment of profound peace inside of them, whether it was just brought about by some chaos or calamity or brought about by a moment of just absolute uh, clarity that was pristine within which they felt peaceful, within which they felt calm, right? And it was completely out of the context of what was happening outside. And that calm and that peace is naturally who you are. And that samadhi is always available to us. And so I don't see any of these spiritual things as being special at all. Actually, quite honestly, the the spiritual ego and identity is the worst trap of all. (laughs) The very second all of this stuff becomes special, you're lost, you're so lost, you're so disconnected, right? Because the tendency in spirituality is, because our core identity isn't enough, we then create this spiritual persona that has to be better than the core identity. And so then all of a sudden, right. So it becomes a trap. So we have to become very aware of the fact that these things are just natural, that they're not a big deal. But, but, but the thing is that we've moved so far away from who we naturally are Dave, that when we return to them, they feel special and they feel extraordinary. You know, they feel, they feel special, but they're not, you know? So that's what I would say to everybody. Yeah. You don't have to be a guru. You don't have to be a monk. You don't have to, you know, have a medicine. you don't have to do all of those things. Guess what? You just have to be you. You have to be you. And if you need help with that, happy to support you with that. But all we're doing is helping you return to who you naturally are.
1: You talk about return to who you naturally are. And, and you mentioned the first step of the five steps uh, in your new book uh, about knowing your essential self. But the the next step in the book is also something I wanted to ask you about, because you talk about committing to a new past, a new present, and a new future. How do you commit to a new past if the past is done and immutable?
2: So it's our relationship with the past. So what we're discovering more and more is that actually people aren't even present. They're living inside of the memory of themselves. And what keeps them in that memory of themselves is all of this heightened emotion that they haven't dealt with from the past. And so the past is overlapping the present because they haven't dealt with what they have to on an emotional level, right? So heightened emotion constitutes memory. We don't remember an average day. We remember the worst day of our lives and the best day of our lives. And so how we free ourselves of the past is by transmuting all of that energy from the past, by turning and facing those events from the past and integrating them and shifting our relationship with them. You know, what we don't realize as human beings is we have this incredible power to have our life whatever be, to have it be whatever we want it to be. We can have our past be traumatic and horrible and you know the worst thing that ever happened, or we can fundamentally redefine it. We don't have to be uh, limited by it at all. And so in committing to a new past, what that means is having the courage to free ourselves of these impressions, these samskaras, these deep memories that are keeping us anchored in a way of being that's limited, right? And also keeping us in aspects of ourselves that haven't matured and developed. And so this is how we commit to a new, a new past. It's how we commit to a new experience of the past and transform the memory so that we can be fully present.
1: I I like that. And I grew up in a Western science-y family and believed that, oh, you know, the past is what it is. But it turns out most of it is all just emotional interpretations of the past. And you truly can, via Eastern methodologies, transpersonal psychology, some Western therapeutic modalities, you can go back and completely change your experience of your past so that it goes from being traumatic to not being traumatic. So whether you want to call that time travel or healing, whatever it is, but you can absolutely commit to a new past. It's just not via the mechanisms that if you think everything is super engineering and linear, like I I always did, uh, it doesn't, you think it's impossible. It's not. It's just that when you remember it, you remember it entirely differently. The facts are the same, but the context is different. Uh, Your third step is, in in your book is commit to inner peace all right so now i know my essential self and i'm going to assume my essential self is you know the good glowy bits not all the angry bits and i'm going to go back and recontextualize my past and my present my future all right now i said all right committing to inner peace even though i may not have actually felt that before how do you commit to something when you don't know what it feels like
2: so we we have this opportunity to come back to and revert back to this core essential state of being okay and how that happens again is through the inclusion of everything that's happening, through the acceptance of everything that's happening, right? So the more we can end our resistance to life, the more we can, for example, end our resistance to this pandemic and, and and all of the things that are unfolding around the pandemic, and the more we can just start to accept what's happening and be with the uncertainty of what's unfolding, the more all of a sudden we start to access this place of peace inside of us. And so when I think in terms of, of how we feel peaceful, it's when we feel calm inside, when we're in this state of neutrality, okay? And there's lots of different ways to do that. One of the most powerful ways to do that is to become aware of our breath in every moment. The more we rest in the awareness of our breath, the more we transform our life into a living meditation. You know, I realized a long time ago that if we're just peaceful for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening, and then we're pissed off for the rest of the 23 hours and 20 minutes of the day, then it's not really helping us very much. So what we need to do is get to a point where we're able to experience this inner peace by coming into the present, by using centering tools and exercises to become anchored fully in what's unfolding now, that allows us to commit to inner peace, to cultivate it, to nurture it, and to have that again, be the foundation from which we live our lives.
1: Now I'm now I've committed to inner peace. I'm still looking for it. And they you're saying commit to fulfillment. This is uh, okay. <laughs> this is another one of those, those words. Uh, okay. What exactly does fulfillment feel like other than I just had a really good burrito? Uh, of course, gluten-free with none of those stupid beans. Uh, but uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, what is fulfillment actually? When you want to commit to something, it's so mushy. Like, how, how do you know?
2: So committing to fulfillment is operating with an absence of need. You know, I when I when st- where I start from is where I'll finish, right? So if I start from fulfillment, I'll finish at fulfillment. But if I start from this kind of hungry ghost emptiness and this fear-like scarcity that's driving me, no matter how much I accumulate, it will never be enough. And I'm just going to stay on that hamster wheel. And so we have to commit from that state of fulfillment in order to continue the momentum of that fulfillment all the way through to the finality of the experience, whatever that is.
1: Okay, that, that one resonates really, uh, really well. Because if, if you need this, you need that, you're in trouble. Uh, need is a weasel word in, uh, in Game Changers, my book. And it's one of those words that we don't use in my house. Uh, my kids will call me out every single time I'll call them out because it's always a lie. Uh, it, it truly is, and our definition of need is, uh, you know, if you need something, it means you're going to die without it. And the truth of the matter is that there's very few things you're going to die without, um, and even oxygen. You say, I need to breathe. Actually, you, you don't. Um, there's this oxygen foam you can get that they're using in a few advanced emergency rooms that you could use via transfusion. So, no, you don't need to breathe. And haven't you haven't even learned how to grow lungs. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing those up is your other fifth commitment is commit to unlimited possibilities, <laughs> which is why you don't have needs because something else is possible that you can think of. And I I really like that that so that's the five the five of them. Um, and it's a list. And my first temptation when uh, when reading the book is to say, okay, I'm going to kind of go through this in order and see you know how would I rank myself against each of these in terms of you know what else do I what's what am I missing? Or what have I done well? Uh, but it turns out it it's not really a linear list the way I'm looking at it. And it almost is like you can start at the top, the top and the bottom. And if you commit to knowing your essential self, and you commit to unlimited possibilities, and you do the other two, then you're going to end up at that inner piece. But what what's the ultimate at, at the end of this? It, it's not to feel like you are enough. The title of the book it is isn't the end goal of following these five commitments something besides being enough?
3: So this gets us to that place of samadhi. That place of inner peace, you know, I, I wrote the, t- the book and, and the title was You Are Enough as an entry point into that ultimate state of being in coherence that we have the capacity to live into. And so You Are Enough is just like the, 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 the shop front that allows you to access this whole back end experience of living in complete harmony and union with who you are on every level.
1: It's a a beautiful and and somewhat esoteric, but it is something that's achievable in in my experience by just about everyone, but it's a lot more work for some people versus others. Uh, How do you know if you're going to be one of those people says, you know, I'm going to commit myself to doing these things and I'm going to feel a difference quickly versus, you know, I think I have a huge amount of work to do.
3: I think that, you know, you and I in the world represent shortcuts for people in different in different ways. And so people represent shortcuts for each other. And so for me, I represent that shortcut for so many people in their lives because I've gone through it. And so I know how to guide somebody into that state and anchor them in that state of experience and then also have them apply it to their business or their organization or their family life and whatever else that, that is that they have going on. And so this is the blessing of humanity. You know, humanity collectively is... is probably achieved and accomplished every uh, expression that there is. And when we realize that we're not alone in this and we can be supported, other people can catalyze and expedite that learning curve and make it seamless and integrate it seamlessly into what we're doing right now. And so that's the blessing again of somebody who's just steeped themselves in it for the majority of their entire existence. Um,
1: I, I, I like that perspective. And when I talk about losing a hundred (laughs) pounds, and having a biology that that works really well look if i could do that uh you probably can because i was i was at sort of the worst state there and and people oftentimes don't recognize you know i i was definitely not on the oh i'm happy i'm i'm on a path I, i was on the i'm pretty pissed off and anxious all the time and don't even know it side of the spectrum uh you know with a lot of the things that you write about in your book going on and i'll just say look if if I can be an example of, of the, the exceptionally unaware, uh, overweight, exceptionally unhealthy person uh, who, who you know, decided to do the work and got some results. It's probably not going to be that bad for, for you if you're listening to this, to be perfectly honest. So unless you've screwed up a lot somewhere uh, biologically and, uh, uh, and emotionally along the way, um, it's probably not as big of a mountain as it looks like it's going to be, uh, would be what I would say. Good advice, bad advice? Perfect
3: advice. That's why, you know, they're the five commitments because we really have to give ourselves to the exploration. You know, we have to give ourselves to the work. We have to give ourselves to whatever it is that we're pursuing. And the degree to which we're committing to it and the degree to which we give ourselves to it is the degree to which we can experience those results. And so what I will say is that if you're not committed to it, then don't even bother because what will happen is it will just become one more source of suffering for you. And it will reinforce all of the feelings that, you know, that you, that you already are compounding, you know, as it is on a daily basis. And so this is where the commitment part is so important.
1: Do you ever get people who are like, Panash, I'm stuck. I'm not good enough at being good enough. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that I'm not good enough. At being like, good enough. I'm, I'm failing at being good enough. <laughs> uh, like I, I don't think I've ever I'm,
3: had I'm, anyone tell me enough. that they're failing at being good enough. No, that that hasn't happened yet, but that's not to say that it may not happen in the future.
1: I have this piece of advice for you. Embrace okay. unlimited possibilities. There, I made okay. one up for All you. Right. <laughs> got
2: it. <laughs> See, you've already mastered the book.
1: <laughs> uh, on that note, Panash, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you going out there and doing your uh, your work in the world. You are making a difference for a very large number of people. I think you already know that, but sometimes hearing it can be good. And thank you for being on on Bulletproof Radio. Your website, Panache Desai, P-A-N-A-C-H-E-D-E-S-A-I dot com. Your new book, "You Are Enough" by Panache Desai. Uh, I think now is the best time that you could you could ever have to pick up a book like this and say, you know what, uh, I might as well work on this. I don't have to commute. So you might have some extra time and this is one of the books you can read and you can say, I'm going to get started. And here's the news flash taken from my uh, my path for whatever it's worth. You're already working on this stuff. You probably just aren't doing it very well. And so learn from someone who's done it before. Uh, they'll illuminate the path and make it easier so it's less work so you can be spiritually lazy, which is really good. So keep listening to Bulletproof Radio, read Panache's book and Panache, thank you.